Hundreds of thousands of years ago, the earliest humans developed an interesting skill, very unique when compared to the millions of other species on the planet. We cultivated the ability to tell stories. It was a way of communicating our experience to others, sometimes for connection, sometimes for survival. For example, perhaps someone came across a saber-toothed tiger on their way to go get water. Well, in an effort to keep his community safe, he needed to find a way to explain what he saw and the danger that this posed to the group. So he, he might have recounted what he saw or reenacted what had happened, but all of it was in a desperate attempt to communicate something important to the other people in his community. Stories are something that we've come to take for granted, like, like a fish in water, because they're everywhere. Very little of what we do isn't touched by storytelling, and this is especially true when it comes to running a business. Stick around, because today we're going to talk all about how we can use stories to sell. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Each week we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. That means doing more covers and driving more revenue. We choose a topic, we pick that topic apart, we come up with some key insights, and then we always finish up with an assignment. I leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing some of the ideas we talk about here on the show, because as I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, of all the episodes I've recorded so far, I think episode number 53 may be my absolute favorite. But sadly, when I look at the analytics, I find it's in the bottom 10. How can that be? Well, timing is everything. I released that episode on Monday, March 16th, the first day of the coronavirus pandemic here in the United States. Well, at least here in New York City. That was the day that restaurants were forced to shut down and the stay-at-home order was given. Suddenly, it didn't matter how good the content was. People just had other things on their mind, myself included. My world was turned upside down in, in the matter of 24 hours. I, I was basically unemployed, and my wife and I became de facto homeschool teachers for our four-year-old. Uh, the past three months have been crazy, but now we're starting to come out the other side. And so I wanted to revisit this topic because especially now, it's important to understand how we're communicating things to our customers. So on that episode, number 53, I told a bunch of different stories, and, and I'm going to share some of them again, as well as some new stories. And the thing I want to get across is that humans are storytelling animals. It is woven into our DNA, and there's very little in our lives that isn't touched by a story. Now think about yourself for a second. When I say, tell me a little bit about yourself, how do you respond? Do you say, well, I'm 5'10", about 180 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair. No, of course not. In fact, if someone did that in an interview or, or at a party, you'd be like, who is this psychopath? No. When someone says, tell me a little bit about yourself, 
you respond with a little bio about yourself. So if it's an interview, you might talk about where you went to school or the last company you worked for. If you're meeting someone at a party, you might talk about where you grew up or, or what you do for a living. We don't recite facts and figures. We give a little bio about ourselves. We tell a story. So a story brings things to life. It, it helps the listener better understand because the experience becomes relatable. We hear about someone who wins the lottery and we can't help but feel for them because we put ourselves into their shoes. We, we hear a song and recognize the emotions that the singer is describing. We watch a movie and feel something because we empathize with the characters on the screen. So right now, my wife and I are rewatching Breaking Bad and it is such a brilliant show, mostly because the setup is so clear. So Walter White is a poor high school chemistry teacher who gets diagnosed with cancer. And given that he has no way to pay for the expensive treatment and no way to take care of his family after he's gone, he starts down a path where he begins cooking crystal meth. Now, we may not make the same choice he does, but given all that information, we can certainly understand the circumstances that caused him to make the choice he does. Stories are everywhere. Like we just talked about a minute ago, there, there's our own story, right? Our biography, as well as the story we tell ourselves, right? We give meaning to the events in our lives. We then draw parallels and, and, and it helps define us to a certain extent. You tell your spouse stories, right? You tell them about your day, typically framing it as a story. Sports has become all about storylines. Famous quarterbacks facing off against each other. A big cleanup batter now playing against the team that traded him away last season. Uh, a team going for back-to-back -back championships, right? That, that gets us thinking about the team's legacy. Stories bring these events to life. They tell us why we should care. And then, of course, we also use stories to sell. For example, when we research a new TV, we discover stories about the, the company or the product features or the cost. And remember, just like we spoke about with the job interview, facts and figures only get us so far, right? So, so you look at the box and it's a 4K, UHD, LED, 4320p, 8.3 million pixels. If you know TVs, okay, you know what all that means. But in order to close the sale, the associate needs to frame that information in such a way that it makes sense. They need to, to put it into context. So they do that by putting on a football game so you can imagine hosting a Super Bowl party where all your friends ooh and ah over your new TV. They'll, they'll put the sound up and play a new movie and you're thinking of turning off the lights in your living room and, and setting in for a killer home viewing experience. That's why Best Buy turns all the TVs on and lets you see the differences. It's a story about quality. Isn't this one that you're looking at now so much better than the TV you have at home? Wouldn't this TV impress the neighbors? Wouldn't you just love to watch the big game on this? Stories are everywhere. And the sooner you recognize that, the better off you're going to be. In fact, when we use storytelling to help us sell, there are five different areas that are worth focusing on. So number one, stories that communicate a brand's mission, their why. Number two, stories that spark conversation. Number three, stories that validate price. Number four, stories that bring deeper appreciation for the product or the brand. And then number five, stories as mythology. Now, I don't necessarily mean that you come up with an actual story to tell because we tell stories all different ways. Sometimes, like with the TVs at Best Buy, the picture tells the story for you. 
So Best Buy plays the football game on a bunch of TVs, and the consumer supplies the rest of the story. They imagine the TV set up in their own den. They imagine their family gathering together to watch the Oscars or or whatever it is. Every story we can think of, I, I think, falls into one of those five categories I just listed. And of course, sometimes a story does some heavy lifting. It can certainly do more than one thing at once. But in order for a marketing story to work, it must accomplish one of these things. So let's go through these and I'll explain what I mean. Number one, stories that communicate a brand's mission. So I think of this in terms of Apple. Of course, everyone knows Apple and their products, and they perhaps more than any other company have a very clear why, and that is to empower the individual. So they make products, both hardware and software, that allows the user to be creative. The iPhone has become iconic at this point, right? Because it's a phone, it's a music player, it's an internet device, and so much more. But it's famous because it's malleable. Depending on what sort of apps you load onto it, it can become something different. So I put photography apps on there and graphic design apps and photo editing software, and suddenly it's tailor-made for a photographer on the go. Or I can load it up with Google Docs and Microsoft Office and Evernote and Dropbox, and it becomes a productivity device. I can load it up with YouTube Kids and Disney Plus and games and other entertainment apps, and suddenly it becomes a kid's toy. One device with infinite flexibility. So not only is the device sleek and stylish, which is another pillar of Apple's products, but it communicates their mission just by virtue of what it is. Okay, so then what about our industry? Well, this can happen in all sorts of different ways. I'll remind you back on episode number 53, we talked about Nyman Ranch and their commitment to quality. So if you're a high-end steakhouse, you communicate something to the diner just by listing Nyman Ranch. Rather than listing high-quality New York Strip, the chef lists it as Nyman Ranch Bone-In Strip. And those who know what Nyman Ranch is understand what it means. And for those who don't, it invites a conversation. So perhaps the waiter makes it a point of talking about Nyman Ranch. Or maybe a guest will ask, hey, what is Nyman Ranch? And then, of course, the response is the story. Did you know that 90% of the beef in this country is corn-fed? It's true, which is kind of strange because cows don't eat corn, they eat grass. They're a grazing animal, and millions of years of evolution have made them that way. Not that corn is bad for them, per se. I mean, feeding them a grain diet allowed farmers to raise more of them and in smaller areas. Uh, So since it's all about real estate, this helped them become uh, more efficient and cost-effective. So back in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, though, the industrial food complex got very efficient, maybe too efficient. In just a couple of decades, farmers and ranchers had figured out how to do more with less. And so for a while, that was a good thing. But in time, uh, people got carried away. Proof of that is evident when you look at the uh, trajectory of the beef industry. You see, by feeding cattle uh, a grain diet, uh, you're able to keep them penned in and you just put a trough in front of them so they can eat. So this helped fatten them up, both because of the diet itself, but also because the lack of exercise. Except there are key nutrients that cows get from a grass diet, and so ranchers soon figured out that they had to feed the cattle antibiotics and hormones. So one was to keep the animals from getting sick, and the other was to help them grow faster. The sooner you grew them to full maturity, the sooner they could be sent to slaughter. 
And so that's how things went for a long time until the early 80s when Bill Nyman looked at the situation and thought, there's something being lost here. So taste, ethics, quality, probably all three. He, he wasn't sure, but he knew that something needed to change. And, and so he set out to do something different. He set out to be the change. He vowed to raise a product that was far superior from everything else on the market. And in the end, he succeeded. All of the beef that comes from Nyman Ranch must adhere to strict guidelines. Grass diet, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, and humanely raised and slaughtered. Just the name Nyman Ranch stands for something. Their, their guidelines are the thing that tells their why. But those guidelines also say something about the kind of restaurant that would choose to serve Nyman Ranch steaks. So, do you just serve steak? Or do you strive to serve the best steak available on the market? And remember, back on episodes 60, 61, and 62, we talked about positioning and the better trap. When I ask my waiter, why should I order this steak that's $20 more than the other one, and you answer, because it's better, it rings hollow. But when you explain to me about the guidelines and protocols and the story of what Nyman Ranch does, well, that tells me far more about why it's better. It drops down deeper and takes on new meaning. Again, stories are very good at this sort of thing. It's why humans have been telling stories for the past 100,000 years. Now, number two, stories that spark conversation. On that episode, number 53, I also talked about Olmsted, a restaurant here in Brooklyn owned by Chef Greg Backstrom and his partner, Max Katzenberg. It's a quirky little spot in Prospect Heights with just 50 seats indoors and space for another 10 or 12 people out in the garden. Uh, many of the things they do and serve have a story to them, uh, but one of the best is the s'mores they serve for dessert. So why do they serve s'mores at a restaurant that otherwise offers all these quirky riffs on well-known dishes? And the easy answer is that, number one, everyone loves them. And also, number two, since you have to eat them outside in the garden, it's a good way to turn tables. Number three, the s'mores are also more expensive than the other desserts, so it helps drive revenue. But the staff won't ever tell you any of that. Really, they'll say it's because they love the garden out back and they love to show it off. A meal isn't complete unless you've had time to sit out there. They'll also talk about their, their homemade marshmallows and, and the little shop where, where they get their graham crackers. And finally, they might tell you about how the chef was an Eagle Scout growing up. It was a big part of his youth. And in a certain way, he wanted to be able to capture some of that and pass it on to his customers when they came and dined at his restaurant. So when I'm looking over the dessert menu and I order s'mores, the server says, okay, give me a minute and I'll set you up outside. What? I didn't know I had to go outside. Well, immediately that sparks a conversation. Now, of course, social media thrives on this, right? So think of the black tap milkshakes or, or the cotton candy they used to serve at the Four Seasons or the dessert table at Alinea. Don't know what I'm talking about? Go look them up. Google all of them. All of them are ways that restaurants spark conversations with their guests or ways that help the guests spark conversations with friends, family, and colleagues after their experience is over. A story can also be a unique feature in the dining room or an unusual service step. 
For example, years ago, there used to be a restaurant here in Brooklyn called Franny's. It was an upscale pizza place, but they never sliced their pizzas. Instead, they would serve these giant kitchen shears, so like like a big pair of scissors, and, and the guests would use it uh, to cut up their own pizza. Super quirky, really interesting, really distinct. So moving on then, number three, stories that validate price. Now, this is obviously an important one because all of us who work in the restaurant industry are in sales. Why is the Dover sold $55? Why is dinner at this place so much more expensive than the place across the street? Why is that bottle of wine $100 more than the one below it? Sommeliers often tell stories when selling wine because it's challenging sometimes to talk to a guest about a page of Napa Cabernets. So to be sure, there are way more similarities between the wines than there are differences. And so it becomes important to try to highlight those differences. So sometimes they can get technical and and talk about the specific vineyard sites or the intricacies of the winemaker's process. But does the average diner really understand how all of those things affect the final product? What does malolactic fermentation do to a wine? Why must we rest this wine on its lees? And, and how does that affect the taste? What, what do we mean by single cluster? More often, you'll hear sommeliers talk about a specific winemaker and their approach to winemaking or their pedigree. They'll talk about the limited quantities of a specific bottle or how tightly allocated a certain wine is. They'll, they'll talk about the meaning of the, of the name or the, or the picture on the label or whatever. Because at the end of the day, those are things that the diner will be more apt to remember. Those are stories that sell because they validate price in the eyes of the consumer. A mediocre wine with a good story gets sold more than a superior wine with no story. Don't believe me? Try it the next time you're out of the nice restaurant. Ask to speak to the sommelier and, and tell her that you were deciding between wine A and wine B. Can you tell me a bit about them and see what they say? Then for fun, ask them for a recommendation. Say, uh, you know, is there something else in this price point that I should be uh, considering instead? When they make their recommendation, ask them to talk a little bit about that wine. What has probably happened is that they've used that as an opportunity to tell you about a wine that they know more about or a wine that has a better story. And often that also means a wine that is more expensive. If they know what they're doing, they've taken you to a wine that's just a bit more expensive than the wines you said you were considering. The best salespeople out there understand that stories sell. Now, to further illustrate that point, again, on episode number 53, I told the story of Jefferson's bourbon. It's great bourbon. Here in New York City, you'll find it on a, on a list for maybe $17 or $18 a shot. It's good. But to be honest, I know relatively little about it. But they also have a more premium offering called Jefferson's Ocean. It's available for a bit more, maybe like $22. And there's a story connected to that one that I know very well. So bourbon is a type of American whiskey known for its softer, sweeter characteristics. Oak aging is key to the process. And so some enterprising young marketer over at Jefferson's decided to take a bunch of barrels, load them onto a boat, and then send it around the world. Why would they do that? Well, not for the romance of it, far from it. In fact, the boat that these barrels are put on is pretty ugly. But when you put whiskey barrels on a boat, the liquid gets sloshed around a bunch as the boat rocks up and down on the waves. So what happens is that the spirit inside is constantly splashing up against the barrel. 
This process is a way of increasing oak contact, thus making a more nuanced final product, one with more of those desirable bourbon characteristics. So is it the best bourbon on the market? Probably not, but it has a better story than most, and you better believe that that story gets told time and time again. Now, does $5 make a whole lot of difference? Maybe not. But if 20 people are ordering bourbon a night at the restaurant and you can upsell them $5 just by telling a simple story, well, then that does start to make a difference to the tune of more than $30,000 a year in increased revenue just by turning someone onto something new with a story. Now extrapolate that out across all of the categories of your menu in every area of the restaurant and trust me, that makes a big difference. The best salespeople out there, again, they understand that stories sell. And the more you can incorporate stories into your day-to-day, the more successful you will be. Now, number four, stories that bring deeper appreciation for the product or the brand. Alinea is out in Chicago. I talk about this place all the time. I'm not even sorry about it. It is one of the most celebrated restaurants in the country, But there are two things that separate it from from the other great restaurants out there. Number one is their use of molecular gastronomy. But there are other restaurants exploring that subject here in the United States, certainly there in Chicago. But then number two is the story of Chef Grant Ackett's and his battle with cancer. When you learn of the fact that Chef Ackett's nearly died of cancer in his late 30s, you begin to understand the restaurant's why. So Grant was diagnosed with mouth cancer, and doctor after doctor told him that they were going to have to remove his tongue to save his life. So a bright, young, upstart chef opens the restaurant of his dreams and suddenly is faced with the prospect of of losing the ability to taste. The poetry is just too good to forget, and, and when you hear the story, well, you start to understand the dichotomy of his cuisine, equal parts serious and whimsical. He was given a new lease on life, and suddenly the idea of carpe diem becomes the seasoning to all of his food. Dinner at Alinea is an event. It's about using food as the conduit for connection, a unique shared experience between guests. It's heightened, theatrical. Alinea is like no other restaurant in the world, partially because their story is all their own. So when a couple dines at Alinea... How will they describe their experience to friends and family? And and how will they put that into context? I think they're probably going to talk about the experience of dining at the restaurant, but I think they're going to frame it by telling Grant's unique story. Now, that story gives you a deeper appreciation for, for the experience, but it's also a bit of mythology. And that brings us to number five, the last area here, right? Stories as mythology. Let me tell you another one, the story of Gurgich Hill's estate out in Napa Valley. So how many of you are familiar with the Paris wine tasting of 1976? It's often referred to these days as the Judgment of Paris. It was a blind tasting which is now famous, where a panel of eminent French judges swirled, sniffed, and sipped some of the most fabled wines in the world. For the whites, they lined up many of the great white burgundies of France and a small sampling of upstart Chardonnays from California. When the scores were tallied, the judges were shocked to discover that they had chosen the 1973 Chateau Montalena Chardonnay as the finest white wine in the world. That's right, a California wine had beaten out some of the very best French producers. Now, the winemaker at Montalena was a Croatian immigrant who had left the country in 1954 to escape communism. 
He was a winemaker by trade and brought his knowledge with him to America. For 20 years, he worked his way up through many Napa wineries, but at the time of the tasting, he was still a virtual unknown, at least on the global stage. Well, all that would quickly change. Within weeks of the tasting, he was approached about starting his own wine label, and by the following spring, they were breaking ground and planting a slew of fresh vines. Gurgich Hills Estate now produces some of the finest wines in California, a full lineup that includes Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, Zinfandel, Chardonnay, and more. Their origin story is powerful. It's a it's a bit of mythology that provides the foundation for everything they do. Why? Because it's unique. Like I'm always asking, what are the stories only you can tell? Stories help anchor ideas in the mind of the consumer. They help them better understand and appreciate what they're buying. They allow the consumer the opportunity to go deeper. Stories help justify the cost of the product, and they give the consumer a foothold to understand what it is. By telling a compelling story, you give your patrons the tools to go out and do your marketing for you. So then think about your own place. Think about some of the dishes on your menu. Is there a story about, about what inspired a certain dish? Is there a story behind your choice of music or your staff uniform, your logo, your menu? What about your origin story? Now, if you're a pizza place, okay, you probably have to have cheese pizza and pepperoni pizza and sausage and peppers and, and mushrooms. Most people will want to create their own pizza, and I guess there's nothing you can do about that. But why not create four or five signature pizzas? Interesting combinations that set you apart from your competitors. If everyone else sells garlic knots, can you serve your own version? What could that be? What do you serve instead of garlic knots? Can you tie that offering into a story? Who are you and why should I care about your pizza? If you don't supply the answers, no one else will. Remember, like we've talked about over and over and over again, you've got to do your research and figure out how you can be different and then tie those differences, that those differentiation points back into your story or, or better yet, use your story to come up with differentiators. Anything valuable has a story or put that in reverse, we craft a story to give something value. So again, stories in selling, I think do one of five things. Number one, there are stories that communicate a brand's mission, their why. Number two, there are stories that spark conversation. Number three, stories validate price. Number four, stories can bring deeper appreciation for the product or the brand. And then finally, stories can be used as mythology. And you can find stories in anything. I told you a bunch today. I've got a million more. Every place I've worked, every client I've helped, I help them find stories to tell. Again, we do this because stories stick in people's minds better than anything else. We do this to build awareness and trust with our audience, both our existing customers as well as our potential customers. And we do this because it helps us get better at creating separation. Remember, Differentiating ourselves from our competitors is crucial. Stories do that. There's only one person in the world with Chef Grant Ackett's story. There's only one Apple. There's only one Olmstead. There's only one you. So your assignment this week is to write down 10 stories that you have. I've given you tons of examples and tons of ideas for sparking inspiration. Now look around. Think about what you do, why you do it, and what makes you different. And if you have trouble coming up with 10, then I think you've got a problem. If that's the case, then you've got to find places to create stories. 
How can you add stories to the menu? How can you spark conversations with your guests? What, what is your origin story? How can you put that front and center? Remember, don't just offer a burger. People can get a good burger anywhere. Make yours different. Come up with your signature burger, one that comes with a story on the side. And maybe you're afraid of upsetting your customer base. Trust me, you won't. If someone just wants a plain cheeseburger, they'll ask for it, and then you can give it to them. But in the meantime, a signature burger has a story. After you've identified 10 stories, you've got to write them down so they get passed on. Find ways of incorporating them into what you do. That is today's lesson, all about how we use stories to move people, how we use storytelling to entice people to trust us and then buy from us. Remember, when someone says, tell me a little bit about yourself, they're not expecting you to to recite your stats. They want you to tell a story, so we have to learn to tell really great stories. As always, I appreciate you being here. Keep spreading the word about the show. Keep doing the assignments. And I will see you back here next time. 